Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So I've titled this morning's message, No Greater Love. Because, as you can see, this text is all about the sacrificial death of God the Son. In fact, this text records for us the very centerpiece of God's redemptive work. We could easily acknowledge that Jesus is the most significant, most important person to ever walk the earth, and that's true. And we could argue that his public ministry was kind of the centerpiece of his reason for being on earth. But if we dialed in the microscope a little bit finer, we would see that his crucifixion and his resurrection formed the really foundation or the the apex, so to speak, of the very mission of God the Son in the flesh. So this morning we're going to focus on these verses. Now, I know that we could easily take five or here at CCF, we could take ten weeks going through these verses. In fact, even as Sue read for us, my guess is not just a few of you, but probably lots of you in this room were thinking, oh, oh, okay, we're going to read on. Okay, it's the next section. Oh, oh, and the next section. Oh, and the next section too. I think as I've spent time in, in prayer and just kind of considering the message this morning, it seemed good to me that we kind of look at this with a, a broader lens. And so we're going to work through all of the verses that Sue read for us and that we followed along because I want us to kind of zoom out and see the incredible sacrificial, redeeming, rest-giving work of God the Son and how that unfolds here. So if you're taking notes and you're helped by an outline this morning, we're going to have four main points. In other words, I'm going to propose to you that there are four scenes that take place here. Scene one we could call Jesus' journey. Look at verse 26, if you would. The word of the Lord says, And as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when the wood is dry? So we pick up in this narrative with Jesus having already stood before the court. He's already been wrongly accused. He's already been turned over to the wishes of the angry crowd. He's already been beaten. He's now been forced to carry his cross to the place where his crucifixion will happen, this place called Golgotha or the place of the skull. However, by this point, Jesus' body is so weak that he likely, it seems, can't even carry his own cross. 
And since Roman law forbid a Roman citizen from carrying a cross unless they were convicted, the soldiers find a convenient outlet through this foreigner, this man, Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is in modern-day Libya. Historians tell us that there was a large concentration of Jewish people who lived in Libya or Cyrene at this time. So it's quite possible that Simon, perhaps even as a believer in Yahweh, comes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In fact, later we we learn from Mark's account of this same event that Simon wasn't there alone. He was there with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, which seems like a really weird detail for Mark to add in in this account, unless perhaps, as some theologians argue, Rufus and Alexander actually became believers and were known to the early church to whom Mark wrote, such that when Mark is writing and he includes the names of Simon's sons, Rufus and Alexander, people are like, oh yeah, we know those guys. In any event, Simon is forced to carry Jesus' cross as Jesus continues up the Via Della Rosa, the, the road of suffering towards the site of the crucifixion. But a curious thing happens as Jesus carries his cross. This crowd, which up until this point in time was primarily made up of those who were mocking Jesus, criticizing Jesus, ridiculing Jesus, abusing Jesus, is now joined by another crowd made up primarily of faithful women who did not abandon Jesus but are now mourning and lamenting. These women are heartbroken over all that's happened to Jesus. Maybe they were a part of Jesus' ministry. Maybe they followed along and they saw some of the things that Jesus did. Maybe they were there when Jesus would preach and would teach. And now they recognize this incredible injustice that's taking place with Jesus being beaten and being crucified. This is incredibly tragic. But Jesus does something interesting here in verse 28. Luke tells us, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Jesus redirects their weeping and mourning, which was directed at himself. He redirects that back to them. He tells them not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves. And then Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah, to tell them that a day is coming when things will be so bad in Jerusalem that even something like like pregnancy and childbearing, which should be a sign of great joy and excitement and blessing, will actually be something you should lament over because you would not want to bring a child into an environment which is so horrible. He says, blessed are those who will not have children in that day. And then he tells them that they will pray and call for the mountains to fall on them. In other words, a landslide would seem a better way to die than to go through the suffering which is to come. Which is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 10 verse 8. And we know from history that all of this happened exactly as Jesus predicted. 
Merely 40 or so years later, in 70 AD, the Romans would come to Jerusalem. They would lay siege to the city, and they would commit such incredibly horrendous atrocities. The people would cry out for rescue, and there would be none. The Romans would destroy the temple. They would desecrate the temple. They would destroy the entire city. In fact, Josephus A Jewish historian writes of the times and he writes in his work, The Jewish Wars, about the desperation of the people during the siege and during the attack. And he talks about the horrible things that was discovered that these Romans had done after the Romans left, having completed their work. And Jesus' words were true. But isn't it interesting that even in Jesus' darkest hour, Even when his life was fading away, he was not focused on his own suffering, on his own condition. He was focused on the condition and the suffering of his people. This brings us to our second scene this morning. We could call this Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. I think one thing we shouldn't miss, and maybe you picked up on this as Sue was reading our text for us, or if you've read the text, hopefully you read the text in preparation of this morning. I think one thing we shouldn't miss is how little is actually said of Jesus' physical suffering. Remember, Luke's purpose, according to Luke chapter 1, is to give us certainty about the things that we have been taught concerning Jesus. And yet Luke says so very little about Jesus' physical suffering. In fact, all of the gospel writers are the same. And typically around Easter time, Resurrection Sunday time, even the secular media will, will put out, whether it's Time Magazine or other news outlets, they'll put out articles about Jesus and the crucifixion and, and what happened on the cross and his beating and all of those things. And most of those articles, if you paid attention, focus almost primarily on the physical suffering of crucifixion and what, was, what, what it was like, what Jesus they would say perhaps went through as he was beaten, as he was scourged, as he was nailed to the cross. But when we open up the pages of sacred scripture, we find so very little about the physical details of the crucifixion. And I think it's not because Jesus' physical suffering is unimportant, but it's because it's not central. The gospel writers lead us clearly and compellingly and trustworthily to understand that Jesus did physically suffer. His his blood freely flowed, that he was beaten, that he was nailed to the cross, that he was crucified. But they don't relish in that. One commentator writes, none of the gospels attempt to elicit pity by dwelling on the horrors of the crucifixion. They are remarkably reserved and restrained in describing Jesus' physical suffering. In other words, it seems as though those are not the things we are to primarily focus on when we think about Jesus' death 
his crucifixion. It seems rather the gospel writers want us to focus on Jesus' words, the words around Jesus, and what was accomplished by Jesus' death. And it's Jesus' words here that are so incredibly important. Verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, again, more words, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sound, uh, sour wine, and again, saying, or words, if you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. Again, more words. This is the king of the Jews. Let's just back up to that first statement from Jesus for a moment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You might remember back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus taught his followers, he taught us, about what it looks like to love our enemies And now he provides a real life example, even as he hangs from the cruelest torture device, even as the crowds around him and the soldiers and the religious leaders mock him and ridicule him, he prays even then to the Father, Father, forgive them. Let's not forget that Jesus' own death on that day is providing the basis by which they might be forgiven. The ESV study Bible note here is helpful. It says they know not what they do. That does not absolve either the Jews or the Romans of their responsibility in Jesus' death, but it shows that they did not fully understand the horrible evil that they were doing in crucifying the Holy and Righteous One who is both the true Messiah and the Son of God. Now this prayer from Jesus doesn't guarantee that everyone who put Jesus to death was forgiven. We know that forgiveness comes with repentance. We've, in fact, already seen that multiple times throughout Luke. The point here is Jesus' heart of forgiveness which is again, is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, that Jesus was not combative, he was not vengeful, he's not bitter, he wasn't reluctant. Rather, he is the willing Savior whose heart overflows with forgiveness for those who kill him, even as they kill him. As they mock him and you ridicule him, Jesus prays. The angry crowd have no idea that they are actually fulfilling Psalm 22. Verbatim, essentially. As they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Here's what they fail to realize. 
The only way Jesus can save others is by not saving himself. And this truth becomes apparent or newly apparent to at least one person in the crowd who has a change of heart. It could be that it was because of Jesus' prayer to the Father. It could have been because Jesus didn't fight back. It could have been the accumulation of a lot of little things. But on the cross, one of the, tr- of the two criminals awakens to Jesus' true identity. Look at verse 39. <clears throat> one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In Matthew chapter 27, in Mark chapter 15, which both recount the same thing, both of those gospel writers tell us that at the beginning, both criminals were mocking Jesus along with the crowd. And yet as the hours wore on, something began to happen inside one of these criminals. Again, we don't know what it was that the Lord used, but the Lord began to work on the mind and the heart of one of these guys. And this criminal believes. And then he actually challenges his fellow criminal. Like, hey, we're here because we deserve this. This is justice for us. But this guy on the middle cross, he has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus, the man on the middle cross, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in that simple statement, he affirms that there's life after death. He affirms that there is a kingdom for the righteous. He affirms that Jesus is the rightful king. And he affirms that access to that kingdom is connected to Jesus the king. Just astounding. We don't know what else this criminal knew. We don't know if he grew up going to the synagogue or learning the prophecies about the Messiah to come. We don't know what his expectations were. But here, on the cross, in these final moments, on this side of eternity, this man turns by faith and believes that Jesus is who he said he is and that he accomplished what he said he would accomplish. And he is saved. Today, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. And the paradise there isn't referring to the, to the French Riviera or even Michigan. <clears throat> it refers to the place where God dwells. 
In fact, it refers to the place that all believers go until Christ returns to make a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with our triune God forever, and then paradise will be here. So to kind of put it another way, paradise is the dwelling place of God, and it's the home of the righteous. And Jesus tells this new believer, today you will be with me in paradise. Every word of that statement is significant. You will be with me in paradise. But the today there is also significant. Today. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, that word today is used, and it's really important. In fact, you remember that at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, the angels announced to the shepherds, For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then Jesus began his earthly ministry by going into the synagogue and opening up the scroll and, and finding the place in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, tells us that Jesus, after he reads from the prophet, says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, he forgives and he heals and he exercises demons. And he says, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of healing. Jesus calls Zacchaeus. And he tells Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house Today. And then he tells the crowd that today salvation has come to this man. And then here on the cross, as Jesus' life is ebbing away, he says, today. Not tomorrow, not maybe, not at some point in time in the future, today. Salvation is today. You see, of all the people present, this criminal newly recognizes his own guilt. He newly recognized that Jesus is who he said he is. And he asks and cries out for salvation, and his eternity is changed in a split second. Like today, in 2023, this man is in the presence of Jesus. And that's the heart of saving faith, isn't it? The heart of saving faith is not, as Alistair Begg has helpfully reminded us in his viral video on this text, knowing big theological words. And the heart of saving faith is not knowing the books of the Bible in order or comprehending the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Heart, the, the heart of saving faith, rather, is I am a helpless sinner. And Jesus is a merciful Savior. That's the heart of saving faith. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. You are who you said you are. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. And that is my only hope in life and death. That is my only hope for salvation. That is my only hope for eternity. Is that true of you this morning? The question is not, 
How many theological concepts do you understand? How well do you know your Bible? How regularly do you attend church? How much do you give? How much do you serve? How moral of a person are you? Who your parents were, what they believed, where you came from. The question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life who suffered and died in your place for your sin as the only way by which you can be forgiven, made right with God, and given an eternity with him forever? Are you believing that today? I mean, notice everyone in the scene had to do something with Jesus. I mean, isn't it fascinating that God in his divine providence would have not just one man crucified with Jesus who believes, but he would have two men crucified with Jesus. One who continues to rail in unbelief in abject rebellion against the king of glory, and one who falls on his face in humility. Because all of us have to do something with Jesus. We either embrace him and acknowledge him and worship him as the king of kings and the lord of lords, or we reject him as an imposter, as a fraud, as a liar, This brings us to our third scene. We have Jesus' journey, Jesus' crucifixion, which brings us now third to Jesus' death. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion who saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus is now weakening. And compared to others who were crucified, historians tell us that Jesus died quite quickly. I tend to believe that that wasn't because Jesus was physically weaker than most, but because he had the weight, the sin of the world on him. You remember the psalmist David talks about when he failed to confess sin, when he hid sin from God, he felt as though his bones were wasting away. And I could tell you just from years of talking and counseling with people that and even from my own life, that unconfessed sin, that sin itself not only affects us in our soul and emotionally and mentally, but it affects us physically. And Jesus in his physical human body was experiencing those things. Jesus in his human will and emotions was experiencing 
Everything that we experience when we sin times the sin of the world. Luke tells us that from about noon until 3 p.m., darkness covered the whole area. Darkness is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of judgment and lament in the Bible. There's here both the literal darkness and there's symbolic darkness. Jesus is actively bearing the weight of sin, the darkness of sin, the heaviness of sin, even as the enemy one last time sought to do his worst. And earlier, you remember Herod demanded that Jesus perform some sort of sign. We saw that in chapter 23. And here they are. In fact, if you compile all the four gospel writers, you have not only the signs that are happening here, darkness and the curtain of the temple torn in two, but you have an earthquake. You have rocks being split. You have tombs opening and dead people who were dead coming out alive and going into the city. Maybe one of the most profound signs that's here, perhaps, is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This was most likely the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, that sacred place that God had prescribed and designed for his people to establish. This place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, this place that symbolized God's presence among his people, this place that symbolized the holiness and the perfection and the power and the might of God that was so great that in light of the people's sin, they could not enter that place. There was a thick 30-foot-high curtain that separated this. And only once a year could a human enter, and even then it was only the high priest to follow a very detailed and prescribed ritual as he would go in, having cleansed himself symbolically, and as he would go in bearing the blood of the sacrifice for the people on his body as he went into the holy places through the blood of a shed animal, a perfect lamb. But now here as Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, hangs on the cross, as his blood is shed and as he dies and enters into the holy of holies, enters in on our behalf, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. God himself divinely tearing apart this curtain demonstrating without any question that access now to God is made possible through the finished work of Jesus. Demonstrating that the old covenant has come to an end, that the priesthood has come to an end, that the time of sacrifices, animal sacrifices and blood sacrifices and the temple structure has come to an end. And it's come to an end in and through Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice, who is the lamb, whose blood is shed to inaugurate a new covenant. Through Jesus himself, who said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, referring to himself, who would come back to life in three days. 
as Hebrews over and over, the book of Hebrews over and over, so poignantly reminds us that now through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, all believers have access to God because Jesus suffered because of his once and for all sacrifice. You see, God provided through his son the payment required for our sin so that all who believe might have access to him. Jesus opened the way. And while all of this is going on, Jesus surrenders his life and breathes his last. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You remember all the way out the beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism. Remember the voice of the Father declared, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, over and over again we read how Jesus was completely obedient to the Father. He trusted the Father. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane that we looked at a few weeks ago, we see Jesus there submitting his human will to the will of the Father. And now, here at the very end, Jesus, even as he dies, continues to entrust himself to the Father. In fact, his statement here as he dies is a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5. But Jesus changes the word Yahweh, proper name of God, He changes it to Father. He is entrusting himself here at the very end to the good hands of his heavenly Father. One commentator, David Garland, writes, instead of trying to save himself, Jesus gave himself trustingly into the hands of his father. In this way, he was saved from the hands of his enemies. In this way, he proved himself to be the righteous one, the son of God. The Jewish leaders wanted to lay hands on Jesus, and they got their wish. But in the end, Jesus gives gives himself over to his father's hands, who ultimately controls his destiny. He entrusts himself to the Father's saving power. The hand of God will rescue him from the hand of all who hate him and who are his enemies. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus dies. But the effect of Jesus' ministry doesn't end there. There's someone else standing by, Luke tells us, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion who who would have had control and authority over a hundred fighting men has just witnessed 
Jesus' heart for forgiveness. He's seen the darkness at midday. He's felt the earthquake. He's likely heard the dialogue of Jesus and the other two criminals. Perhaps he's even heard of some of Jesus' teaching previously. We don't know what specific things the Lord used to open this centurion's eyes, but his eyes were opened. And he declares, likely loud enough for those around to hear it and record it, certainly this man was innocent. In fact, Matthew and Mark add that the centurion also said, truly this was the Son of God. He praises God and recognizes Jesus' rightful identity. Which brings us to our final scene this morning, scene number four, which is Jesus' burial. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Joseph is an interesting figure here. We're not going to take the time to go into detail, but we learn he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. But he's referred to as a good and righteous man, which is often how the Bible refers to someone who is a believer. A believer in Yahweh. He's not gone along with a group that falsely condemned Jesus. And now he takes Jesus' body and he buries it in his tomb. The thing I want you to focus on is the last part of verse 56. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is an important point to make because you remember all the way back at creation... God rested on the Sabbath day and declared it holy. And then throughout the entire Old Testament, Old Covenant era, God commanded that his people rest on the Sabbath, rest on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, in obedience to him as a reminder that they were sustained not by what they accomplished or what they did, but they were sustained by the God who created them. It was by faith that they were to endure. By faith, they were to find their identity and their existence. So the Sabbath became a day of rest. It was designed to be a day of worship, acknowledging the creator God. And then Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Jesus preaches and teaches that the rest now is found in himself. Jesus begins by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, I've come to declare release of the captives and good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and the year of the Lord's favor, which was a year of rest for the people, ultimate rest. And Jesus says, you find that now in me. Isn't it fascinating that Luke chooses to include, as the Holy Spirit leads him along, chooses to include this little note, they rested 
on the Sabbath according to the commandment. This would be the last time that they rested according to this commandment. Because now, through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, Sabbath rest wasn't ultimately found in in a day of the week set aside, although it's important and good to set aside a day of the week for worship. But ultimate Sabbath rest is found through the one who is our rest, who has brought us peace with God, who through his work means there is no condemnation for us who believe, who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Rest because our identity is not found in what we do. It's found in whose we are. And Jesus goes to the cross to give us rest. And friends, this is the power of the cross. That Jesus would take our sin upon himself. That Jesus would bear the wrath of God. That Jesus would die as a substitute in our place for all who believe. So that we might be forgiven. So that we might be cleansed. So that we might be adopted. So that we might be justified and redeemed through the work of the cross. This is why a, an antiquated torture device from a bygone era is now a symbol that adorns church walls and it adorns our neck sometimes. Why? Because this is the symbol of hope. It's not that there's power in the wood or there's power in the cross itself, but it's the work that was accomplished there. That's the power. So our band's going to come back and we're going to sing the power of the cross. As we sing, I want you to think through the words. If it means stopping singing for a moment so that you can contemplate on the words that will be up on the screen, I want you to consider the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're here this morning, you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Our deepest prayer would be that as we sang this morning, as we prayed, as we've read, as we've proclaimed the word of God this morning, that God would be transforming your heart and opening the eyes of your heart that you might see his glory and your need and the way of salvation accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ and you would turn to him this morning by faith. And if you are here this morning and you are a believer, our deepest prayer for you this morning is that we would delight in Christ's finished work of the cross and that even as Pastor Josh prayed earlier, that would inform how we fight sin, that would inform our joy, that would inform our gratitude and our thankfulness, that would inform our worship. Would you stand with me? If this morning you have questions about things that were said or things that were sung or things that were read, then when our service is complete and over here in just a few minutes, I would encourage you to seek out anyone you saw on the platform today. Some of them, some of us will just kind of linger around the front. 
we would love to talk. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to try to answer questions you might have. We'd love to get to know you, if that's you. Father in heaven, we, we stand forgiven. We stand amazed. We stand in awe of your great love for us, demonstrated through the death of Jesus, our Savior. Father, may we never tire of glorying in his accomplished work on the cross. Do your work in us through your spirit, even as we pray and sing these truths this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.